So tonight I would like to tell you a story. And this story is a myth, and it's a teaching, and it's also a reflection. And I'll emphasize certain themes of practice as they emerge out of this story. And this story is from the Udana, which in the Pali Canon, in the teachings of the Buddha, is called the Book of Inspired Utterances. And I'll read the story to you, and I'll offer commentary on the story, a very uh, current commentary, which will be my own commentary. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason why I would like to read this story and offer my commentary is because, first of all, I have a great love for the story itself. And I've learned slowly to have a great love for the suttas themselves. And at least for me, the suttas, the teachings from the Pali Canon, were an acquired taste. I wasn't so interested in them at first. I was much more interested in practice. I didn't care about all those stories and he said, she said. I was like, let's sit, let's walk, let's see where this practice goes. And when I first came into teacher training, one of the first things Jack said was, well, here, I want you to read this. I can't even remember, Sutta Nipata. I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to do this teacher training if I have to read all this stuff, all this Buddhist stuff. But slowly, the suttas became a source of inspiration, of instruction, and of connection to something far beyond what I knew about Buddhism. And so hopefully I can offer that to you tonight. We'll see. We'll see what you think. And so the story begins, as almost all the teaching stories in the Pali Canon begin, thus have I heard. Thus have I heard. And so we can stop right there. We can reflect on what is this? What does that mean? Thus have I heard. The teaching stories of the Buddha come to us from an ancient and oral tradition. They have been passed on from from mouth to ear for 2,500 years. And when you hear that line, thus have I heard, it's Ananda who's speaking. So you're hearing Ananda's voice. Because Ananda was the Buddha's attendant, he was the Buddha's cousin, and he had this great memory. And so he remembered all the stories, not only of what he saw, what happened around the Buddha and the dialogues the Buddha had, 
teachings the Buddha gave, but he also remembered all the stories the Buddha told. And so he, he's a pivotal character in the teachings because it's through him that these stories came alive and continued after the death of the Buddha. I, I think what happened was there was a convocation a number of months after the Buddha died, and Ananda recited all the stories. And the stories were then recited, people memorized the stories. And then over and over again, for hundreds of years, they continued in that fashion until they were first written down on banana leaves. And then on, you know, then the software got upgraded and there was parchment. Then it was upgraded again to paper. And that's where I first found the story. It was in a book. But it's really Ananda's offering to us. And I like to really reflect on that, that we're hearing Ananda, because I find it helpful to feel my connection to the lineage that is sitting here, or maybe more accurately said, that we are sitting in, that we are an expression of, and a continuation of 2,500 years of men and women struggling, suffering, awakening, discovering their heart, discovering the nature of mind through their sincerity and their work together. The Buddha said, he said, when you see the Dharma, you see me. So as you sit and walk here, so you go through your days, and insight comes. The Dharma reveals itself. The Buddha comes alive here. He's with us. Ananda is with us. If you sense this, which I sometimes do, you can sense the great stream of Dharma that we're swimming in. That if at any generation it had fallen from the face of the earth, we wouldn't be doing this in this way. That this water is touching all of us. And I find it really satisfying and also helpful to see clearly this stream of Dharma, this lineage that we are a part of, that Spirit Rock is an expression of, that your yearning to awaken is an expression, expression of. And the story continues. <laughs> At one time, the Blessed One was staying near Svati in the Jetta wood at Anattapindaka's monastery. So you've already been introduced to Anattapindaka. Jack spoke of him, spoke of his dying, and it's a beautiful, moving story and teaching of non-clinging. Anattapindaka has a special meaning for us as householders and lay practitioners. In some way, he's our forefather. He's one of our ancestors. 
because he was one of the foremost lay practitioners at the time of the Buddha. And so you read about him throughout the scriptures and you see he really, and especially in that last teaching, he made it possible for the highest teachings to be offered to lay practitioners. He also, when they say that the Buddha was staying in the Jetta wood at Anathapindaka's monastery, well, it was because Anathapindaka bought that wood from Prince Jetta. It's a famous story because he's fallen in love with the Buddha. Anathapindaka has, and he sees that they need a monastery for the rain season. And um, he says to Prince Jetta, he said, I'll buy that land. And Prince Jetta jokingly says, well, cover it with gold and it's yours. And Anathapindaka doesn't blink an eye. He said, it's done. And Prince Jetta tries to weasel out. He said, oh, I was just kidding, but, but people won't let him get out of it. And so Anathapindaka covers it with gold, which was probably a lot of money in that time. And he buys this monastery, and so he's a great benefactor of the Buddha. And we're sitting in a place where people covered this land with gold. Because, you know, that's what it takes to build a place like this. And many of you are not the Pindaka. Many of you have contributed that we can sit in this generosity. So I, I, I have a great feeling for Anathapindaka. And it said, at that time, Bahia of the bark cloth was living by the seashore at Superraka. So I was, I was imagining today, I was imagining Bahia, and I started kind of having this kind of Lord Buckley rap about Bahia, if you know who Lord Buckley is. But like Bahia of the Barcloth is living by the seashore at Superraka. He sounds like a kind of hipster surfer <laughs> hanging out, you know, in Goa, and he's wearing a barcloth to cover his private parts, you know. But that's not who he was. So it's just my mind. <laughs> it's said here about Bahia that he was respected, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage. So Bahia was a wandering ascetic. And there were many in India at the time of the Buddha. And there are still many in India. If you go to India, one of the fun things to do is hang out with some of the wandering sadhus. They're kind of wild. And they're no different. You can find, you know, men and women wandering around wearing bark cloth. It's, it's still in fashion for the ascetics there. Now, he was a sincere practitioner, so he was honored and venerated, given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicines, meaning that the community really respected him and cared for him, gave offerings so that he could practice. Now, while he was in seclusion, like you are now, while he was practicing quietly, 
This reflection arose in the mind of Bahi of the Barcloth. He thought, Am I one of those in the world who are arhats or who have entered the path to arhatship? Now, just so to make sure you all know, an arhat is considered a worthy one or a fully awakened being, a perfected human being. And some of you may have had this reflection as you've sat here in seclusion. You know, are you on the right path? That's basically what he was asking. Am I going to reach my goal? Is this the right place for me to be? Where am I on the path in my practice? And this is a valuable reflection. It's not a valuable reflection to do every 10 minutes or every sitting, but, you know, once every few days or once a week, you know, it's kind of, how am I doing? Not as an opportunity for judgment or criticism, but really an opportunity to see, what am I understanding here? What don't I understand? What's clear or unclear? Am I practicing with the kind of sincerity that I would like to? that brought me here? Where do I kind of uh, fudge around practice or deceive myself? How might I use a reflection on how I'm doing in order to deepen my understanding and my commitment and my realization? So it's a valuable reflection that comes to Bahia. And it can be a valuable reflection periodically for each of us. So, it's said that a deva, kind of holy being or heavenly being, who was a former blood relation of Bahia of the Barcloth, I don't know how they know these things, but they do, understood that that reflection in his mind. And being compassionate and wishing to benefit him, he approached Bahia and said, You, Bahia, are neither an arhat, nor have you entered the path to arhatship. You do not follow a practice whereby you could be an arhat or enter the path to arhatship. And so this heavenly being comes who's his cousin, used to be. And, you know, and we might think of it as some intuition or inner knowing or guidance that comes sometimes. And this deva is compassionate. Compassion and offers him a compassionate response, saying, nope, you're not doing the right thing. This is not compassion that's limited to just being nice or some kind of uh, Pollyanna idea of compassion. This is the compassion of the truth. And the truth is, can be very compassionate even when it's difficult. Because we don't always want to hear the truth. But it's much harder to find freedom without seeing the truth without knowing the truth. 
Sometimes we call this kind of tough love or the hard truth. And sometimes we offer a little of that here. You actually don't get a lot in this teaching. Some teachings, sometimes in Zen practice, you can get a little more of that, that um, tough love, compassion. Here we're more like, you know, we'll tell you sometimes really directly, don't read, don't write. You know, it's not because reading or writing are bad. It's really a support for your practice. Don't make eye contact. Don't take breaks. See what happens with this precious time. And Bahia then says to the deva, in the world, including the devas, who are arhats and who have entered the path to arhatship? And so he's not afraid of the truth. But he, he immediately wants to know, well, if, if I'm doing the wrong thing, where do I find the right thing? Because he's guided by his devotion to the truth and to awakening. The Buddha, when he was dying, said, be a lamp unto yourselves, be a refuge to yourselves, hold fast to the truth as a lamp, hold fast to the truth as a refuge. And so the Buddha, Bahia's like, okay, where is it? Where can I find arhatship? Where can I find someone who's awake? And he really represents us in this story. This is our story. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have this quest, this deep yearning. This is our intention, our motivation. And it's a great and sacred yearning, the yearning for awakening, for freedom, for wholeness, for the truth, for understanding. Who are we? How do we find out? What do I need to do to wake up? Suzuki Roshi used to ask his students, what's your heart's inmost desire, your deepest desire? Follow it. Let it lead you. Let it guide you. Rumi talked about this yearning in this way. He said, one night a man was crying out, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic said, I've heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten a response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw Keter, the guide of souls in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? The man answered, because I've never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you to union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining 
is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the name of. Give your life to be one of them. So Bahia hears that there is, in a far country town, there is a Buddha who lives now who is an arhat, a fully awakened one, and that he teaches dharma for the realization of arhatship. And then Bahia of the bark cloth, profoundly stirred by the words of the deva, then and there departed from Supraka. So he's not kidding around, Bahia. He's motivated, he's inspired, and he leaves immediately. And it said, taking but one night to complete the journey, he went to Svati, where the Blessed One was staying in the Jetta wood at Anathapindaka's monastery. And at that time, a number of... Let me stop there to say something, because... Just to understand what it means that he went in one night. The distance that he went was an impossible distance to do in one night. That it's a mythological phrase to say that he went in one night. Taking one night, we have to understand, comes from a power that occurs, that arises when we commit to following our deepest yearnings, our deepest desire to be free. This quote was often read at the, in the early years I used to practice. You may have heard it. Until, there is, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves also. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And Bahia trusts himself and his yearning to awaken very deeply. And so he's able to leave Supraka and get to the town where the Buddha is in one day. And he sees a number of bhikkhus, practitioners like us, walking up and down in the open air, doing their walking meditation. And he said, where, venerables, is the Blessed One now living, the Arhat, the fully enlightened one? I wish to see the Buddha, who is the Arhat. And they answer him, and they say, the Buddha, Bahia, has gone for alms food among the houses. So how do you like them apples? You take this mythological journey 
and the Buddha's out to lunch. <laughs> happens that way sometimes. Bahia doesn't let that stop him. It said, then Bahia hurriedly left the Jetta wood. His intention is unstoppable, his ardor, his passion for practice, his intention. It said, he hurriedly left the Jetta wood and entering Svati, he saw the Blessed One walking for food among the houses. And when he saw him, he saw that he was lovely to see, pleasing, with calm senses and tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, a perfected one, watchful with restrained senses. And on seeing the Blessed One, he approached, fell down with his head at the Blessed One's feet, and said, Teach me Dharma, Buddha. Teach me Dharma, Sugata so that it will be for the, my good and happiness for a long time. So he recognizes immediately the grace, the beauty of awakening. The delight of realization Many of you have begun to express some of this grace, some of this delight. And the natural gratitude that arises with it. The humility that comes immediately that will put out, we bow to it. It's what we always wanted. And it's so simple. Just simple presence. Sometimes it's been in taking a step and just feeling that step and nothing else is there. And there's a grace there and you know it. You don't even have to think about it. Then there's a humility and a sense of blessing. And, it, and bowing makes total sense at that moment. Or just sitting and being here content. Even if it's for five minutes. We're seeing the absolute simplicity of a moment. And so our humility arises spontaneously and we put our head at the Buddha's feet as Bahia did. And so he asked the Buddha, he said, please give me teaching. Can you imagine? You finally come from across the country, you get to Spirit Rock, and there's the people are walking, they say, oh, the Buddha's up the hill, and you go up and there's the Buddha, and he's radiant. And your passion totally allows for your disinhibition, you say, please teach me, please. And it said, upon being spoken to thus, the Buddha said to Bahia of the bark cloth, It is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We are going for alms food. <laughs> You've come all the way across the country. You go up. You go up the hill. 
There's Jack Cornfield. <laughs> or the Buddha. And they say, no. That could be a tough one to work with for a few minutes. There are many ways to understand this mythologically. Many ways. And it's an important little piece here in the story. One way is simply that practice is not easy. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come without struggle. It's not just given to us. It's the rare, rare, rare person that practice comes easy to. Most of us are in the slow and difficult lane. Partly this represents the fact that there are many obstacles to practice. It's not just that we're, we're not, um, we don't have a certain proclivity for practice, but there are actual obstacles in spiritual life. That's part of one's maturation and realization. And that patience is an important and valuable factor in practice. And you've all developed a lot here. Otherwise, you would have left. <laughs> it takes a lot of patience to stay here with our minds and our hearts and our bodies, doing whatever they want to do, no matter what we want. And so it's a very important to respect the force of our conditioning, our habits. In the Zen tradition, this is kind of epitomized in the practice of what's called Tangario. If you go to Tassajara to practice and you want to go, the first thing you do is have to sit Tangario. And you're by yourself in the Zendo for any number of days and you're alone. They leave you alone. They bring you food and you just stay there. It's a kind of purification ritual before you can enter the community. And in the old days, it was like you'd go and wait outside the door and you'd knock on the door and they'd say, go away. And you'd have to sit there in the cold and, you know, they wouldn't put the food out. If anything, they'd throw the slops over the door, if you know what slops are. Any situation, anything that is truly, deeply important to us, that is worthy of our heart's desire, has obstacles and difficulties. And they are the path. They're not separate from the path. Now, Bahia, maybe patience wasn't his forte right then, but passion definitely was. Because he said, a second time, Bahia said to the Buddha, and now he's kind of, uh, he's expanding. He's really working his request here. He says, It is difficult to know for certain, revered sir, how long the Buddha will live or how long I will live. <laughs> he's, he's getting them right in his home base here. He says, Teach me Dharma, Buddha. Teach me Dharma, Sugata, sweet one, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. So I thought that was pretty cool of, uh, of Bahia. First of all, I appreciate his perseverance. I appreciate, again, his passion, his desire, his perseverance. Practice takes effort. Have you noticed that? 
<laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Effort is a really interesting and important part of practice. It's one of the Eightfold Noble Path wise or right effort. And so I think it, it might be helpful just to say a little more about effort at this point. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, strictly speaking, any effort we make is not good for our practice because it creates waves in the mind. It is impossible, however, to attain absolute calmness of our mind without any effort. He's beautifully stating the paradox. We must make some effort. Excuse me, it is impossible. Yes, we must make some effort but we must forget ourselves in the effort we make. In this realm, there is no subjectivity or objectivity. So this is an important, now we're starting to move towards effortless effort. He says we should try to continue our effort forever but we should not expect to reach some stage when we will forget all about it. The effort will be refined more and more while you are sitting. At first, the effort you make is quite rough and impure, but by the power of practice, the effort will become purer and purer. When your effort becomes pure, your body and mind become pure. This is the way we practice. Have you noticed how your effort was rougher at first and now it's pure? And you'll continue to make this effort with no thought of gaining. Simply the effort. So Bahia knows how to make some effort here. He also knows about the truth of impermanence through his own practice. And we've said a lot about that, so I won't go into impermanence right now. But the Buddha says a second time, it is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We are going for, I'm going to lunch. You know, I'm hungry. But then Bahia, who's quite dedicated, perseveres again. And a third time he asks the Buddha, Again, it's difficult to know if you'll die, if I'll die. Come on, give me a break. I just want some teachings. It doesn't have to be a lot. I'm summarizing there. Um, now, traditionally, um, if the Buddha's ask anything three times, he always gives it. And so, and it's actually very rare. I only know of one place, there may be two, but I, I know for sure of one, and it's a really crucial place in the teachings where he doesn't give it. But here he does. Finally, he says, he says, um, he says, okay. So now listen up, because this is the heart of this little story. Ready? He says, here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus. And that's what we've been doing. We've been, the practice of mindfulness is a training of the heart and mind. He says, you should train yourself thus. In the seen, there is merely what is seen. And you can try this out now. In the heard, there is merely what is heard. 
in the sensed. There is merely what is sensed. In the cognized, there is merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. This is our practice. This is mindfulness practice. In the scene, just the scene. In the heard, just the heard. In the felt or sensed, just the sensations. In the thought, just thought, just the cognized. Allowing the bare experience of existence to awaken us. The bare phenomena, just this moment. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the retreat, but I'll, I'll say it again. This was from Thich Nhat Hanh, who calls this practice mindfulness observation meditation. He says the key, the combination to unlocking observation meditation is that the subject of the observation and the object of the observation not be regarded as two separate things. In the scene, just the scene. Students of meditation have to remove the boundary between subject and object. When we observe something, when we're mindful of it, when we know it directly, we are that thing. Non-duality is the key word. Observing the body in the body means that in the process of knowing the body, we do not stand outside of our own body like an independent observer, but are one with the object being known. This can lead us to the direct penetration, the penetration and direct experience of reality. In observation meditation, the body and mind are one entity. And the subject and object of meditation are one entity also. The meditator is a fully engaged participant, not a separate observer. In the sensed, just the sensed. Now again, this is the heart of this teaching and it continues here. The Buddha continues, he says, when Bahia, in the scene is just the scene, in the herd, just the herd, etc. Then Bahia, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you are not with that, then Bahia, you will not be in that. When Bahia, you are not in that, then Bahia, you will be neither here, nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just this 
is the end of suffering. You will not be with this, in that, neither here nor beyond, nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. In the scene, just the scene. No Eugene separate from it. Nothing out there or in here or in between. This flow of phenomena. Joseph always used to use the phrase, Joseph Goldstein, empty phenomena rolling on. No me or I, or mine, no having, no not having. In the herd, just the herd. So, There's a poem from Ryokan. It describes the simplicity of what's called the mind that abides nowhere, not here, not there, not in between. And I'll read it to you just to clarify when he says no mind at the beginning, it's N-O, and later he uses the word no, K-N-O-W. He says with no mind, Blossoms invite the butterflies. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossom. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. When he says, I do not know others, it's, there's no reification, concretization, solidification of others or himself. Empty phenomena expressing itself here in this room in your seat, in my seat, in the room itself. Now it's said that through this brief Dharma teaching of the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was immediately freed from taints and without grasping. That's a, that's a traditional line in the suttas, meaning he got it. 
So I hope your minds are freed from taints and without grasping. Then the Blessed One, having instructed Bahia with this brief instruction, went to lunch. <laughs> now, in some ways, it seems like it should end there, right? It's a, that's a pretty good ending. Partly what makes this such an interesting story to me is it doesn't end there. It continues. Not long after the Blessed One's departure, a cow with a young calf attacked Bahia of the bark cloth and killed him. So I read this and I thought, Bahia is killed by a killer cow? Some of these stories are a little wild. <laughs> what, what does this mean? You get it and then a cow takes you out? <laughs> I mean, so, since I'm giving commentary, you know, again, we could point to the reality of impermanence. That's one level. We can point to things are so empty we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. That's how free things are. That's another level. The level I actually relate to the most personally was summed up by a phrase from Trungpa Rinpoche, who said that practice was one insult after another. Or Suzuki Roshi would say, practice is one continuous mistake. And I guess on the most basic level, it forces one to be humble if you get killed by a killer cow. Um, and that's not a bad thing. What, what both Suzuki Roshi and uh, Trungpa are pointing to is that any identity ultimately is a prison is not freedom. And I've had the experiences of identities being shredded. And it's not fun. It's actually really painful. Because you think you're something and then you see, oh, that's actually not who I am. And it seems so comfortable or cozy or familiar. Here's a poem from Ryokan. He said, Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine, talking with some children, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. (laughs) Practice is humbling, not a bad thing. So the Buddha, having gone for lunch, alms food, and returning, saw with his mind's eye that Bahia of the bark cloth had died. And he said, Bhikkhus, take Bahia's body, put it on a, a leader, carry it away and burn it. Make a stupa, a holy place for it. Your companion in the holy life has died. And they do as the Buddha asks. And then they come to him. And just a little point there. It points to, it doesn't matter how long 
you've been in this practice or anything, how much you contributed or did or didn't do, your sincerity of heart opens the door here. And nobody can take that away from you. And and so the monks, nuns, they say, um, they sit by the side of uh, the Buddha. They say, Bahia's body has been burnt. Stupa has been made. What is his destiny? What is his future birth? And the Buddha said, Bahia of the bark cloth was a wise man. He practiced according to Dharma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dharma. And I'll let all of you make your own interpretations about that. He said, Bhikkhu's Bahia of the bark cloth has attained final nirvana, enlightenment. And on realizing this, the Buddha uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. And I don't know if everybody knows, but the Buddha was a poet. But again, this book of inspired utterances really are poems at the end of each little teaching. And it's an expression of awakening. It's a beautiful expression. Pointing us towards what can't be spoken. He says, where neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold, there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. When a sage has, to, has come to know this for himself through his own experience, then he is freed from form and formless freed from pleasure and from pain. So you hear that it's spoken in poetics, mythopoetics, paradox. And it's a lovely to hear the poetics of awakening. And sometimes it speaks to us even more directly to try to, than trying to say it directly because it's so mysterious, this awakening, this freedom that comes. And even as you've tasted it here, just sitting and walking and being present, and then somebody described it today. I asked her, I said, describe your experience because it was clear she was having a really, you know, definite insight. She kept going, You have to open your eyes because it was indescribable. And it is indescribable. Here's another way it's described, this indescribable. This is from Dogen. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self, which we've been doing here. We've been studying the self in the form of body and heart and mind. To study the self is to forget the self, to let go of the self in a contracted way, in a grasping way. And you've all experienced some of that as the self falls away. To forget the self is to be awakened or intimate with all things because the boundaries dissolve, because there really aren't any boundaries. Boundaries are an idea. 
people don't, we don't often hear, read the rest of this quote, and I'd like to to you, because it's so beautiful. So when we become intimate with all things, when awakened by all things, Dogen says, your body and mind, as well as the body and minds of others, fall away. It's like what Ryokan was saying about, I do not know others, others do not know me. So he says, our bodies and minds, the body and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization, awakening, remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. No trace of realization remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. Let's sit, please. In the scene, just the scene, in the herd, just what is heard. In the felt, merely what is felt. In the cognized, merely what is cognized. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.